0: No promises. Okay, so that's all the announcements. I think I crushed them. You were good? Okay. None of them were on the screen. None of them were in writing. None of you remember any of them. Uh, But I did my diligence. (laughs) So so today we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17. So if you've been here at any point over the last three months or so, uh, you probably know that we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, There's likely a copy of the book of Acts sitting in the back of the chair in front of you somewhere. We're going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts documents the birth and really the the rise of Christianity. If you wonder what the book of Acts is about, it's basically about the first 30 years of the church, okay? So if you were to go backward time-wise from the book of Acts, the four books right before Acts are what we know as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They document the life and ministry of Jesus, the books that come after the book of Acts for really almost the entire rest of the New Testament are mostly what we know of as epistles. Epistles are letters that the founding fathers of the church, the, the apostles, that they wrote to the churches. Okay, so we have some of their, they're almost like journal entries, but they're, they're letters that were written to the church. So that's what's happening before and after. But the book of Acts documents the bridge in between from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the church, okay? I don't know why, but God decided that his plan for uh, working out the reconciliation of all things on the earth was us, the church. Uh, It's pretty cool and pretty terrifying. He better be really good at being God if he's gonna work all of that out through us, right? Uh, I'm confident that he is. So, Acts tells us how God's plan for the redeeming of the world moved from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the church. So we're in chapter 17 now. We're over halfway. Now there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And there's a bunch of really strange things that happen throughout the book, but one in particular I just want to call your attention to. Here's what happens over and over. We see this cycle. Courageous, faithful men of God stand up and they declare this simple message. Okay, this keeps happening over and over. They stand up and they declare publicly that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. He's the son of God. He was crucified to pay for your sins, and then he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not an offensive message, I don't think, probably to any of us, but they stand up and continually declare this message, this simple gospel, and here's what happens every time they do. Some people receive it and put their faith in Christ, and then others become enraged and begin to persecute, sometimes even beat, occasionally even kill them because of this message. The crazy part is they keep doing it. They keep standing up, declaring the gospel. So I'll just, I'll just make mention of a few things that happened. Early on, Peter and John stand up in Jerusalem, they preach to the crowd that Jesus is Lord, and what happens? They get arrested right out of the gate. Just a few chapters later, Philip, He confronts a sorcerer named Simon, who's into all kinds of sort of demonic practices and all kinds of chaos erupts around Philip. Yep, but he keeps preaching. Just a few chapters later, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Just a few chapters later, James, Jesus' brother, was killed for his faith. A little bit later on, Peter imprisoned again. Later on, Paul and Barnabas are run out of Antioch and Iconium. Later on, Paul is nearly stoned to death in a place called Lystra. Last week, Pastor Rick talked about Paul and Silas' trip to Philippi, where they too were imprisoned, and yet they just keep doing it. They just keep talking about Jesus. No amount of persecution is going to stop them from talking about Jesus. Everywhere they go, they come with this one message, religion is is dead Jesus died for your sins, so you can be free, not bound up by religion, you can be free to know and worship God by grace through faith. And then in chapter 17, they come to a place called Thessalonica. Uh, If you recognize the name Thessalonians, there's um, a couple books in the Bible, uh, first and second Thessalonians, they're actually letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, Acts tells us about the founding, the first time he went there and started the church. Later on, he wrote 1 and Second Thessalonians as letters to send back to them. So here they come to Thessalonica. They start preaching Jesus, and a group of Jews basically incite a mob against them. They drag some of the believers before the city council, and they made this accusation. In chapter 17, verse 6, it says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, who was one of the believers, has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Pretty powerful stuff. So in order to try and, and get them in trouble, uh, they don't talk about how they're, they're preaching against Moses or against the Old Testament. They're appealing to the council saying, oh, they're, they're saying there's another king besides Caesar. They're, they're trying to appeal to Um, to the Romans and get them in trouble. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time anyone accused you of trying to turn the world upside down? That must have been a pretty bold message because you can say a lot of crazy things in our day and no one's going to accuse you of trying to turn the world upside down. But tell me if this sounds familiar. There's an angry mob. They want something. I'm not convinced they actually even know what they want. They just know they want something, something different than what is. And so they drag the Christians out into the street. They basically just lose their collective minds. Why? Because they want something. Sound familiar? That that seems like something that's happened a few times throughout history. They knew that what was in front of them wasn't okay with them, and they just wanted something different. Here's what I find interesting. Paul and Silas were actually bringing them the thing that they needed, this gospel, this simple message of Jesus, but even when it was right in front of them, they didn't recognize it. Paul and Silas actually came to turn the world right side up. They came to say, Jesus is king, not Caesar, not Zeus, not money, not social reform, not a political candidate, not you, Jesus. Jesus is king. That's that's their message. And guess what happened? Just like everywhere else, they were forced to leave there too. They actually had to leave the city for their own safety. But what did they do? They just moved on to the next place and started talking about Jesus. So they went to a place called Berea. Uh, If you've ever heard of the Berean church, there's a denomination in uh, in our North America called the Bereans. They're actually named after these people in Berea. This is what it says in verse 11. It says that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. They did a couple of really smart things. It says that they received the word with eagerness. When they heard the message about Jesus, it didn't go straight through, like it sometimes does for us. Uh, Or sometimes maybe we, we feel like God might be, say, speaking to our conscience, but we just sort of move on and hope we forget about it so we don't have to take action. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you don't do that. They received this word with eagerness. If God has plans for them, they want all of it. And so the second thing they did was they examined the scriptures. They dove into the word daily. They got into the scripture for themselves We talked about this at our meeting on Thursday night. We are really on a mission to make this the most gospel centric church it possibly can be, and to be the most biblically literate group of people that we possibly can be. So, for us right now, knowing that, what I would say we should do is we should observe the example of the Bereans. They received the gospel with joy. This message about Jesus, they received it. Sometimes when I hear good news, I'm maybe looking for reasons not to believe it, but it appears that they were looking for reasons to believe it. They received it with joy, and they dove into the Word of God. Now, of course, as usual, there was opposition, because this happens every time. The group that ran them out of Thessalonica a few days before followed them. They show up in Berea. They chased them all the way there. Now, what's cool about the believers in Berea is because they received the word with joy and they learned how to examine the scriptures for themselves, what they said was, Paul, we're okay. You've shown us what to do. We've got the the scripture for ourselves." So they actually made him leave for his own safety, knowing that they had what they needed. They sent him away, and Paul ends up in a place called Athens. So we're just going to pick up the story of what happens in Athens But first, I just want to ask you the question, why is it that they kept declaring the gospel? They kept declaring that Jesus is the answer, knowing that they were going to receive this forceful opposition. I mean, just in our nature, if we know that we're going to run into opposition, in general, that will cause us to sort of second guess, do I really need to say this? I mean, is it really worth it to me? but what about it was worthwhile to them? Why was it worth this opposition? Pastor Rick talked last week about the church in Philippi and their interactions there, it was found in chapter 16. And later on, after Paul left Philippi, later on he wrote a letter to them as well. We know it as the book of Philippians. Uh, Some of you might remember if you were around back in the winter, we actually went through the entire book of Philippians. This is what he said, to the Christians at Philippi in Philippians 3, 8. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count everything as loss compared to. You might say it that way. I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage rubbish, refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's saying, I count all of the other things that I have gained in life garbage compared to knowing Christ. Perhaps that's why it was worth it to him to proclaim the gospel knowing that he would endure opposition. Romans 1.16 sheds a lot of light perhaps on why they would share the gospel no matter what. Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome. He wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, this is a really critical point that's easy to gloss over. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. If you're wondering, okay, where's where's the power? It's not in the convincing. It's not in the intellectual assent. The gospel is... The power of God. What's cool about that is if it is the power of God, it doesn't need our help. It just wants our participation. God has provided all the power necessary to bring us into relationship with him. He's provided all of the power necessary to save and transform a person's life. The power is in the gospel. And I just think sometimes we as Christians, we spend too much effort trying to do other things that are noble and good but we leave the gospel behind. And when we do that, we're leaving the power behind. That make sense? We try to do good things for people, and we should. We try to show love to people, and we should. But if we leave the gospel behind, we're leaving the power behind. The gospel is the power of God. It both saves and transforms our lives. So here we go. Looking a little more closely at what happens in in Athens, this is really a relevant interaction. It's very similar uh, in a lot of ways to what happens in our day. Paul encounters in Athens the best and the brightest, the intellectually superior, the best thinkers of the day. And it's so funny because they have all these philosophical musings, but Paul just gives them the same simple answer that he gives everyone else. Whether he's dealing with the philosophers or the simple-minded, He never strays from the simple message of the gospel. Here we go. Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was still waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, while he was still waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and then he also reasoned in the marketplace every day with anyone who happened to be there. Which is kind of funny in our context. It would have been a little more normal for them. He's just hanging out, like having these philosophical discussions with whomever comes by. Okay, so Athens is not necessarily the seat of power in the Roman Empire. Okay, Rome is, is the seat of power in their empire. Athens was actually much more prominent during the time of the Greeks, who really ruled that part of the world before the Romans came and took over. Athens wasn't a seat of military power in any way, but it was the hub of intellectual and religious authority, okay? The Romans love power. The Romans love to flex their muscles and demonstrate their authority, but Athens is different. The Greeks, what they love is knowledge. What they love is intellect. And I happen to know that there are a lot of really smart people in this church, and I'm not even just saying that. I actually think that's true. There's a lot of people who are part of this community who love knowledge. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, and, and it also means that we spend time with a lot of other people who love knowledge. Uh, Athens is, is like us very much in that way. This is the home of some names that you might reckon, recognize uh, Aristotle, Athens. Plato, Athens. Um, Socrates, or Socrates, if you remember Bill and Ted. Anyone, does anyone remember Bill and Ted? Okay, I got a couple hands right there. Yeah, I know. I was dating myself big time with that one. Um, okay, Athens, this is, where, this is where those guys did their thing, okay? This is the philosophical center of the world, really. What you find in Athens that's kind of interesting is there's just idols and temples all over the place, places of worship to the Greek gods, um, I thought it was really strange when my kids were in elementary school. They had, like, this whole unit. It was, like, half a year long on Greek mythology. I didn't remember doing that when I was, when I was a kid. But, but Athens is the place where that belief system really spawned from. The phrase, full of idols, okay, it's, uh, uh, Acts is originally written in Greek. The phrase that we translate right there, full of idols, it could also be translated something like drowning in idols. Full, like, you might, like, fill up a glass of water to where it would overflow, Uh, it could translate something like that. So you might find their temples, not might, you would find their temples to names like Zeus, Hermes, Aphrodite. Um, You know, we sort of envision like, you know, Roman columns and people in white robes sitting around trying to sound smart. That's kind of what was happening there, actually. Verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? What is he talking about? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, strange gods, because he was preaching, what was it? Jesus and the resurrection. He doesn't need another message. He sticks with the one he's got. Okay, so the Epicureans, uh, you occasionally see that word in our day, and it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? The Epicureans basically believed that pleasure, the pleasure of the senses, is the meaning of life. So their philosophy was get whatever kind of pleasure you can possibly get out of this life because when you're dead, that's it. That was basically what their philosophy was. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, they had a little bit of a different belief. Their belief basically was that um, we should accept the natural course of things with as much dignity as possible. To live with honor and dignity, that's the meaning of life. That's what the Stoics would have said. Do either of those things sound familiar in our day? Right? We have, we have pleasure seekers. We have, I don't know, maybe like nature lovers trying to like, you know, maybe minimalists might be, you know, something kind of in that same, that same realm. Uh, it sounds a lot like some of the things that we see in our day. But notice what Paul is declaring to them. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul's amazing. He blows my mind. He's not trying to get clever. He's just letting the gospel flex, just letting it do its thing. Verse 19, it says, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? I would love to know how they actually said that, right? Because if you wanted to sound like really sophisticated, you would say, excuse me, may we know what this new teaching is that you are declaring to all of us? Instead of like, what you talking about? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Have you ever been in a room full of people who just all really wanna sound smart? Uh, I have. Uh, I've probably, if I'm just honest, I've probably even played my part in that conversation. Not probably, I have played my part in that conversation. And if I was just to remove myself, I would say, that's a really annoying group of people. I should stop doing that. But that's what's going on right here. The Athenians, they worshiped knowledge. They wanted the best thing you could do was to be, was to sound smart. And if you couldn't do that, then, you know, at least try to be around the smart people. You know, really, the, the goal was to be smart. We're the best. We're the smartest. We're the enlightened ones. Knowledge was just one of many idols in their city. And they, they desired knowledge more than they desired God. That was their idol. By the way, knowledge is a virtuous thing. It's a good thing. Idols can be virtuous things too. Uh, I, was at, uh, <laughs> I was at a track meet with our son the last two days, and guess what? There was a whole bunch of idols out there doing laps around the track and parents worshiping on the sidelines. Uh, idols can be... Really virtuous things. Yeah, I just I just want to call attention to that because we all we all have that. We all have that. Paul finds himself here in the hub of this conversation, before the best and brightest people in the city. And what he does is he contextualizes the gospel to so the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Athenians. In verse twenty-two it says, "So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, uh, you might recognize that." name. This is what he said. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an idol with this inscription, to the unknown God. They even had an idol to the catch-all God. They were confident that they hadn't found it yet. And by it, I mean it. Whatever it is they're looking for, they knew they hadn't found it yet. So they had just prepared an idol in advance just in case they found it. Whatever it, whatever they're looking for, they have an idol ready just in case so they don't offend him. What what therefore you worship, Paul said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. I'm about to tell you what you don't know. I'm about to tell you what it is, he tells them. He points out that in your own belief system, you've allowed room for the God that you don't know yet, and I'm about to tell you about him. And he brings the, he, he sort of begins at this kind of broad scope. It's really, really smart how he does this. The grandest, most cosmic scale in verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it. He starts at the biggest scale there is. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's really beginning at Genesis 1, But they're not Jews. These people are Greeks. They don't have the Old Testament. If he said, open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, they would be like, please explain to us that which you talk about, therefore, or however they would have said that. What he's telling them, though, is... The God you seek is bigger than all of your whiny, petulant, imaginary, mythical gods. The true God who created everything and gives life to everything, he doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your temple. He doesn't need anything from you in order to be sufficient. By the way, that's really good news that God doesn't need my help. It would be a real problem if God needed my help in order to work things out. Paul's telling them, Look at everything you see. Look at everything you understand, the earth, the sun, the people, the temples you've built. You see all of that? God made it all, and it was effortless for him. He made it all like it was nothing, just at the sound of his voice. The point is, the God you don't know, he could never be contained in anything made by human hands. God gives you life. God gives you breath. God gives you everything you need. In verse 26, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling. This is a very important verse. It doesn't really roll off very easily in our thinking the way the sentence is constructed. Translation is a pretty amazing science. This is what it says. God allotted the periods and boundaries of their dwelling. He made everybody, and he allotted the periods and boundaries of their dwelling. If you were just to say that in more casual language, you could say something like this. God created everyone, and he chose the time and the place where they would live. Does God care about people? So much so that he appointed the time and the place that they would live. Uh, I know that it would say it would be constructed in that form because there are scholars who actually translate it exactly like that. That God appointed the time and the place that they would live. So here you have all of these Athenians thinking the gods are far away. Uh, They're kind of cranky and angry and insecure. And our job is to do all of the right things and keep them happy. And Paul says, God is personal. God is personal. He knows you, he cares for you. And this idea, it would have been totally foreign to them. For a lot of us in our culture, it's kind of more like, of course God cares about me. I'm awesome. <laughs> Why wouldn't he care about me? Maybe, maybe we don't think that. But for them, they just would have had no headspace at all for this idea of a personal God. At this point, they're probably already like, what you talking about, Paul? They wouldn't say it like that. But verse 27 And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted the periods and boundaries of their dwelling, verse 27 now, (laughs) that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, these quotes from an Epicurean philosopher, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. There is a God who created everything. He doesn't need to be placated or appeased. He's too big for that. But he can be known, Paul tells them. He is personal. He's not far away. He is close to you. He wants to know you. For in him, we live. We live in him. We move. We go through our life in him. In him, we have our being. We find our meaning. The point of life is discovered. In him, we live. In him, we move. In him, we have our being. That's where it is, the it that they're looking for. It's in him. Think about the profound nature of that statement. Through Christ, your life is found in god through christ you are indeed god's offspring this is the gospel this is the good news verse 30 paul says the times of ignorance in the past god overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in his righteousness Now this, they would have had a headspace before because they thought the gods were all angry, looking for a reason to judge. But Paul says, you know, in the past, God didn't pass judgment on you because you didn't know him. That, That wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be reasonable. But now you do know. You do have the opportunity to turn to him. And here it comes, bringing it all back to the simple message. He says, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did he just say raising him from the dead? I, did he say raising him from the dead? That's, that has to be what they're thinking. Did he just say, yeah, I think he said raising him from the dead. You all have your statues and your temples and your imaginary fantasies about what the gods are like. But let me tell you about the real, true God. Let me tell you what he's like. Let me tell you about the one who tosses death aside. You ever seen anybody do that? Let me tell you about the God who tosses death aside. Let me tell you about the one who created it all and has made a way for you, wherever you're at right now, junior high, high school, retirement, mom just trying to survive, out there working for a living. He's made a way for you to know him. Here's how you know you have eternal life. This is how you know that you can be found in Christ, he says. This is his his evidence. The harshest reality about being a human is the fact that life is a temporary situation. All of us will die. All of us will be subject to death. This is the harshest reality because we live in a fallen world. But Jesus, who overcame death, get this he now has the power over death. In other words, death doesn't make the rules, he does. He has authority to overrule death for whomever he chooses. Now, here's one thing that was vastly different about Paul than it was for you and me. He says, here's your proof, Jesus rose from the dead. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, I think you could make the, the argument pretty, pretty easily that there's no way Christianity got off the ground ever, if the people there, the first generation of Christians, hadn't actually seen the resurrected Jesus. But Paul's point is, I know that this is true because I saw it with my own two eyes. Jesus was risen from the dead, he says. He gets to make the rules. God has sealed this promise of salvation with a tangible sign by raising Jesus from the dead. This is how you can be sure that you have eternal life because death couldn't contain our leader. That's how you know that you have eternal life, because the one who makes the rule has power over death. Now, this is hard for them to believe, as it is in our day. It's not the easiest thing to get your head around and believe. But guess what? The one who overpowers death makes the rules. Jesus gets to decide. It's the thing that sets Jesus apart from everyone else who's ever lived the resurrection. He gets to make the rules. All right, let's, re- let's round it out. Verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Okay, so Paul has this interaction with the best and brightest, the hyper-intellectuals of his day. How is that relevant to me? I'm just trying to get through high school, do my thing. Or I'm just going through life, I'm building a career, I'm trying to find my way in the world. How is this relevant to me? Because I don't have a temple to Zeus in my backyard. I don't have idols on my mantle. I'm assuming you don't either. Maybe, but I'm guessing you don't. So how is this relevant to us? It's relevant because searching for the unknown God is the story of our lives this is the story of humanity searching for it it's always just over the horizon peace happiness whatever i'm i'm looking for thinking that it's going to put everything in line it's always just out there the search for the unknown god is the story of humanity anybody have a job they love Anybody have a spouse they love? Anybody have kids they love? Anybody have a hobby they love? Anybody have dreams or goals for the future that they're all excited about? Anybody have a boyfriend or a girlfriend they love? We're really good at making idols. We're really good. Anybody dreaming about uh, an amazing vacation or a dream car? Uh, Anybody have something out there in the future that you're excited about, that you're looking forward to? That's awesome. All of that is great. But don't let yourself fall into the trap of counting on that to be your God. I adore Brandy. I love being married to Brandy. And it would be so easy for me to put the weight of my personal happiness on Brandy's shoulders, and it would crush her. Don't do that to the people you love. The search for the unknown God is the story of our lives. That's a weight that nothing else can bear. You know what happens when you climb the mountain and reach the goal? You ever climbed a mountain? You ever been all the way to the peak of a mountain before? Guess what's up there? Another mountain. That's how it works. It's always always just on the other side of the next hill. When we put our hope in anything other than Jesus, happiness will be always just over the horizon. Fulfillment will always be just over the next hill. This is why Paul said, I count everything a loss when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And he said, I want nothing more than to know him and to be found in him. When our hopes and our dreams and our relationships, when those things are submitted to Jesus, they don't have to bear the weight of being our God. The gospel is the power for that. All all of those other things are free to be blessings from God, not Be our God. Friends, the gospel is enough. The gospel is the power of God. It's what we're looking for. So I would say to you, Christian, allow yourself to be re-gospeled today. Gospel, you know, this this idea that God sent his son into the world to pay for my sin so that so that I could be in relationship with him. It kind of seems like the ABCs, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like, oh yeah, that's the gateway. And then I go through the gateway and I move on to more mature Christian things. But it's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. Allow yourself to be re-gospeled, to come alive in Christ, to receive Jesus again and again and again. Don't confuse that with me saying that you can move in and out of salvation. Jesus paid the bill once and for all. But allow yourself to be continually renewed by the power of knowing that God looked at you at your ugliest The time that you'd be most ashamed of, and you said, I love you. I'm going to send my son to die for you. That's really good news. In him, we live. In him, we move. In him, we have our being. Amen? Would you stand up with me? I want to just pray really quick. And uh, I'm going to send us out. Jessica's all prepared to lead us in another song. But you know what, girl? Take the next five minutes off. (laughs) Jesus, thank you. Just thank you. God, we're just grateful that um, even though we just we have a tendency to wander off, like the old song says, that we're, we're prone to wander, we're prone to leave the God we love, we can't outrun you. That's just the bottom line. You are a masterful shepherd. And so, God, I thank you that even at our worst, you died for us. And even at our best, you still died for us doesn't matter, that our our future is secure in you. And so, Lord, I thank you that the power is in the gospel. May we never leave that behind in pursuit of uh, morality or trying to work for you um, or trying to find our meaning in the things that we do and achieve and acquire. God, may we know always that we are simply loved because Jesus has paid the bill for us. I thank you for your goodness, God. I pray you bless our amazing summer day in Jesus' name. Amen.